2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus, through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And notice, not it's not a gift of God, it is the gift of God. That's an important um important term. I mean, it's it's important when the definite article is used in the Greek. It's always an important thing. And in a lot of places, the, the King James doesn't even use it. But if you go into a more literal translation or translation where someone wrote it that has a real understanding of the weight of the language, they'll always put the definite article. Um, you know, so you'll have things like uh he that hath the Son hath the life. He that hath not the Son hath not the life. It's not just life. It is the life, the, the specific one that God was always intending to give to the souls of men. So it's mm. an important distinction that we see that this grace, this salvation that God has given to us is the gift that he always desired to give and bestow to the soul of man and that gift leaves us you know it's like anything that's given from someone that has <clears throat> that someone has the supply you know on, that someone possesses the supply to give to you uh something that you do not possess in yourself out of their abundance they give to your non-abundance they give to your insufficiency out of their sufficiency and that always, as verse 9 says, it, it, it leaves no man a room to boast at all. You can't boast in your works. Your works were not strong enough to do it. You can't boast in your abilities. Your abilities couldn't do this. And here's a, we may get in this at some point in time, maybe just a lesson by itself, but your belief, your faith, what we call our faith, isn't strong enough to save you. It has to be a faith that is a gift of God. You know, gift, faith is a gift. Faith is not just something we conjure up. I think I'll believe in God today. That's a gift. That's something God, you can't believe hard enough to be saved, to save your soul. This has to be something implemented in Rod of God. And that's what we're talking about. And when you start in verse four, when he says the rich, he begins to describe the richness of God's mercy and the love wherewith he loved us. Then he begins to explain exactly who he came to, who was those that necessitated this rich, abundant, kindness from God, which is the same word used here for mercy. 
who who are those to whom he came? Was it the qualified? I mean, we read that in First Corinthians chapter uh, chapter one. You know, he he didn't call the those who have and those who are and the the mighty and the the knowledgeable. He called nothings. He called those who are are nothing. So that those who are called could not boast in themselves, but they could, you know, stand and glory in the fact that of God are you in Christ Jesus, who is made unto us all things. This is the grace that has saved us because we were in need of that grace. We were in need of a mercy given of God because when he came to us, and we, we saw this in the... Uh, in the parallels that we were showing between Ezekiel 37 and these, in these verses, uh, the first part of chapter two, and, and even to here, who did he come to those who were dead, those who were dead. And, his, um, uh, let me, and as Ezekiel 37, you know, it wasn't just dead. It was dried up, dried bones. That's who he came to. That's who he had to show his mercy to. I mean, you walk up to something like that, there's not much potential there. So God didn't come to me because he saw my potential. Yay. <laughs> oh, sorry. He came was... to me. He came to me to show me the abundance of his love and his mercy. He came to bestow on me a gift out of that great love, out of that kindness of heart that he has toward us. And, and you know, these are the these are the realities we've already talked about. But, I, you know, one of the things I want to want to deal with tonight, what is this grace that has been given to us? What has it done? What is this salvation that we have come to? And, of course, there's no way to ever exhaust that, but touching on some portions of it. And I've stated this multiple times over these lessons, over the years that I've taught it all. We have to recognize that our salvation as it is, the salvation we have received in Christ, and there's no qualifiers that I'm giving you, not if you've reached this level of it. No, the fullness of salvation reached you at the moment of new birth. There's no levels beyond that. There is fullness in him. You are complete those those things do not have qualifications and levels. It's salvation, full and complete. That's what we have received. And we have to recognize that this salvation is God himself giving to the soul the totality of his everlasting purpose, his intent, his eternal will, that which he predetermined and preordained and, and decided beforehand would be uh, done and and would satisfy him totally. We know that Christ embodied, you know, just Christ in and of himself is the satisfaction of the Father. However, the desire of God was also to have that love and that that kindness exercised toward us so that we could become partakers and beneficiaries of his own his own satisfaction, that which he finds pleasure in and has found his rest and Sabbath, which we'll talk about tonight. So, but I want us to consider carefully, you know, why 
Paul prefaced a lot of the things that he says in, you know, what we're reading in the letter to the Ephesians. I mean, he says things like, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Ephesians 1.3, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. I mean, you see that, you know, Paul reaches into the eternities to say, this is not just by happenstance. This is not just something that fell out of the sky by accident. This is not just something we stumble upon. When we receive Christ, we receive what God in his heart and in his mind purposed from before the foundation of the world. We get the whole of it. The whole mystery of his wheel now has been brought to us. And this is the basis of it. This is the source and origin um, of all that has come to us in grace. Um, that, you know, as he says in, in the ninth verse, you know, what he made to abound toward us. These are wonderful statements that we have to realize in their, you know, and it's hard. You can't just scripturally understand the immensity of these things. These things have to be seen in the light of the person of Christ. They have to be seen in the weightiness of an eternal um, substance, or else we'll bring them down into the earth and try to define them into a superficial, you know, nothingness of, of the familiar things that we're used to. So we, you know, we think these things that he's had, you know, even even when he says, I come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Look at the millions of ways we've misinterpreted and misapplied and totally messed up the whole meaning of that phrase. We brought it into the earth. We brought it down into a realm that is familiar to us and we have just lost the whole weight of it, the, the, the true beauty of it, that he came to the dead to give them life that they never had, that they didn't have a hope of. And he was the only means by which that would be communicated to the souls of the dead so that that which is dead could finally come to life and that in its abundance. And what does that mean? That's not abundance as we think in a multitude of things. It is the abounding fullness of Christ himself. It's the exceedingness of his very person. So that's the richness or bountifulness of his mercy that has come to us. Um, so again, when you, when you see these words, you have to look at them in the light of what we have received. And, and this is why I guess, you know, this is kind of the burden that's been on my heart for some time now. What we have received is it. <laughs> You know, what we've received is everything. There's there's no little parts and pieces. There's no fragments and all of that stuff. We have received it all. What God intended and desired and promised and 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 prophesied, you know, through the prophets, we've received it in a gift. We've received it as a gift. 
so that we could live in the restfulness of being found in him, having nothing of our own. Because the fact is, when he found you, you didn't have one thing in your hand. You didn't have anything. You were dead. <laughs> you know, He came to those while we were dead in sin. Can you imagine that? I mean, we think, oh, we've got to get ready. We've got to get ready to meet Jesus as far as salvation. You know, clean up, go to church, and, and go to the altar. No, he found me when I was dead in sin. I don't care if I was wearing a necktie and a pew or you know, passed out in an alley. I was dead. It doesn't matter. The way we qualified in the earthly, you know, ways that we do means nothing. We were dead in sin. You know, and he came to the dead to give them the life and to bestow the richness of his mercy and his love. And that's the beauty of this. In, in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, he says this, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, and disobedient, and deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. And again, we look at those things and we begin to assess each one of those phrases and we see which term applied to us and which one doesn't like the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. We see which one we think we have and which one we've gotten rid of. And we try to assess it in the, in the light of those terms that we've now brought into an earthly definition and applied to ourselves, or say that we no longer do that. And we're not that. And we weren't that. The fact is he's describing a nature. He's describing the man that we were by birth. That's what we were. That's what we were. But God, after the kindness, this is verse 4 of Titus 3, but after he describes that condition, but after the, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man has appeared, not by works of righteousness, which you have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And you can understand, you know, the multiple parallels that we just reading those few verses, the parallels that, that has to Ephesians chapter two, just the verses we've been reading up from the first verse down to what we read tonight. There is that beautiful parallel of, you know, dead in sin. You know, that's foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts, living in malice. He's, he said before, you know, we were, you know, had our conversation in time past with these in this state and, uh, you know, uh, in the pleasures of the flesh. He says that in the feet. It's the same thing he's saying. The parallels are there. So he's saying the same thing here in Titus, but look at it. But the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward men has appeared. Not because you worked, not because of your righteousness, which you've done. He appeared in accordance to his mercy. And in accordance to that mercy, 
he has saved us. Do you see how my hands are off of this at all times? That's what keeps it secure. That's what keeps it safe. Man has no part to play in this, in the, in the uh, certainty of it. It is something God did, and God keeps it on his side of the net, okay? Let's just say it that way. He keeps the reality of it. He keeps the security of it on his side, meaning it's not in my hands that it can fall out and I can stumble with it and break it. It's always in his possession. It's always his. That's why everything that he has, that the, the uh, Paul and the others will say with regard to the salvation we have, with regard to the grace that we have received and the abundance of that and the riches of it, it always, with us, it always is contingent upon one thing, in Christ Jesus. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. In him you are complete. And there is nothing that we have outside of that condition, outside of that union. It has to be that we have it because we have him. Nothing on our part, it's all on his. And the steadiness and the certainty of it is always that it's him and his. That's, that's always true. And this is going to... You know, we're, we're seeing the mercy of God, but then Paul's going to begin to bring it into the whole reality of the Jew and the Gentile. This is something the Jew and the Gentile had to partake of. It wasn't for just the Gentile, and then the Jew has this way. It was for both. Because both men, as we've read before in Romans 3, were condemned and under, by the law, condemned as sinners. Because there is none righteous, no, not one. This is something... God had to do himself. So in the light of that, let me let me take you to a couple of places in the Old Testament, and I want to see this, again, a parallel of what we're reading in Ephesians chapter 2 with these two particular places. Uh, because, again, when we speak of being raised together, seated together in heavenly places. What is that? What does that mean? Because when you're reading, you know, and, and one of the studies I'm doing right now is really kind of helping me with this because I'm, you have to see everything in the scripture, everything we, you know, the things that we've read in the scripture, and so many times we've mis misunderstood it because we don't see it in the light of the transition from the first to the second or from the natural to the spiritual or from the old to the new. We don't see the transition that has to govern the meaning of that particular verse. And I see this in the light of what we're going to talk about tonight. When we read things like you are raised together, seated, heavenly places, gathered together, what does that mean? What does that take in? It's a big deal, and most people just 
you know, look at it as a metaphor. When you read a lot of commentaries and most of the commentaries you read, you'll read it as if it is just, oh, it's metaphorical. You know, it's a metaphorical uh, theological idea. And But one day it's going to actually be a reality. We're going to be in heaven. And we're going to be where God always intended us for, for us to be. What I'm telling you is that where we are right now in Christ is where God always intended for the souls of men to be. We are brought into the predetermined place that God always promised. There's no necessary future fulfillment. The salvation of the soul fulfilled. All promises in him are what all the promises are. Yes. And amen. That means every single one of them. The new, and here's, here's something that people do not understand a lot of times, and I'll get in trouble saying it probably, but the new Testament, the new covenant, let's say it that way. The new covenant does not give us one more promise at all the new covenant doesn't come with a bunch of promises it doesn't come with one more promise for something else for something more the new covenant comes as the full reality that was promised the new covenant is the very reality that the old pointed to it is the promise fulfilled but it is the promise fulfilled inwardly. That's why the new covenant is written in the heart because the reality promised of God was always to be fulfilled and realized inwardly, spiritually, never externally, never naturally. Okay. So that's, that's a big deal. Amen. That's a really big deal. To understand the new covenant does not give you promises. The new covenant is all the promises, yes and amen, in him. So let's read these verses. and We're going to go to Exodus chapter 15. Let's read these verses in the light of that, in the light of this great transition from the first to the second, from the testimony to the true reality testified of Exodus 15 13 uh, and I'm going to read the first just I'm going to read verse 13 in King James and then we're going to go to the English Standard Version and I'm going to do this because this shows you the mercy we just read about in Ephesians thou in thy mercy has led forth the people which you have redeemed and you have guided them in your strength unto your holy habitation. Now, take that to what we read a while ago. Take that to Ephesians chapter 2. He hath raised us up together. By grace you are saved. There's your redemption. Well, you could do the whole thing. Who is rich in mercy. Even when we were dead in sin, he has quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved and has raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, go back to Exodus 15. You have led them in your 
kindness, your mercy. The English Standard Version says your steadfast love. And you have led these people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard and they have trembled. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All of the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Do you see how he's put away one thing altogether? Just the terror of the day of the Lord and the coming of that day. It's a great and terrible day as it's been prophesied. This is a testimony of that. They, these would be in pain and dismayed and trembling and the inhabitants have melted away. I mean, there's a place in, in the, in, uh, where he says that the elements will melt away with fervent heat. And the, and the heavens, and I think it said the heavens and the earth will roll up like a scroll. That's You're seeing that picture right here. What's he talking about here? Their deliverance from Egypt, from death. When, when they were in Egypt, they were in the state of death. In fact, they said under that system, we are dead men. We are dead here. We're slaves here. That's the same enslavement to sin that we are in. This is the picture. When he delivered them and redeemed them in his own power, in his mercy, and by his strength, he brought them out unto himself. In fact, in Exodus, it also says this. I think it's Exodus 13, uh, I believe. He says, you saw what I did unto the to the Egyptians and how I brought you out on eagle's wings unto myself. There's the picture. What did Jesus say in John 14? I will bring you unto myself. That's the picture. What's that a picture of? The deliverance from Egypt. That's the deliverance by the blood of the lamb. See, that's the deliverance from the state of bondage in sin, in sin, in slavery to sin. That's what this whole picture is about. And the only thing that could deliver them was the, you know, it was the death of the firstborn of Egypt. And the firstborn of God came forth. When they ate of the lamb the next day, they came forth. And who did they say? that Israel was my firstborn. The other is gone. The other's dead. The firstborn of God now lives and is raised. That's a, that's a lot. Okay. There's a lot of things that point here. It's the same reality, but it speaks of salvation. There's a great deliverance that's happening here. So all the inhabitants of Canaan and melted away, terror and dread fall upon all them because of the greatness of your arm. That's your power, your strength. They're still as a stone to your people, O Lord, pass by till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. This is this is a big deal. This is part of the picture that we're reading in fulfillment in Ephesians chapter 1 concerning our salvation. 
that in this we have been raised and gathered and brought into the mountain of the Lord, brought into the very sanctuary in heaven itself. But how does that happen? When does that happen? Right? Because everybody thinks it's not yet. It's just a metaphor. Paul's just talking metaphorically. It's not really real until maybe someday in the future. No, it's really, really real right now. It's the, it, this, what we have in Christ is the most real because it's the real that God was always after. That's why I could always in Hebrews, he's saying, this is the better thing. It's, it's not, you know, you have the testimony that's found in the high priest. You have the testimonies found in the tabernacle. If you're reading through Hebrews, if it's written like most of, most of Christianity believe, then he would say, you know, this, the testimony of the tabernacle that was, you know, this it's, it's fulfilled in Christ. Okay. Christ has come mm -hmm. as the middle point, mm -hmm. but the real stuff happens later. That's not what he says. He's dividing between and comparing between two things, the testimony and the reality that which testified of Christ and Christ himself. And in every case, Christ is better. In every case, Christ is better, not because he's just better because he's, you know, Jesus is better because he is the embodiment of everything this first thing talked about. He is the substance and amen of it all. And what Paul is trying to do in so many places and in the place we're talking about now is take in all of those testimonial elements and say, what we now have is the reality promise. It was, the, it was the reality God was always after. And that is true. Whether you are a Jew who was under that system that had all of those typifications and types and shadows, or you're a Gentile that didn't, there is one door, one way, one salvation. And it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, you all are recipients in need of the mercy of God that has been shown. This is a work of God's kindness toward us. It is the kindness of God that brings us to what? Repentance. This is the work of God that brings us out of this enslavement. So when you see the word mercy here, it's the same. You, you see the same intention as what we read in Ephesians. And then uh, then he says this. We read it. Not only you have not only have you uh, redeemed these people in your steadfast love but you have guided them in your strength and you will bring them in and plant them. There is a word here that's used. You have guided them in your strength. Look at the word guided here. It's in, if you want to look it up in the Strong's, it's 5095 is the number in Strong's Old Testament. Nahal is the word. It means to lead unto a place of rest. Listen to that. 
He didn't just lead them around. It was their unbelief that made them go around and around and around in circles. God's point was to guide them to the goal, guide them. And that's another definition of this word <laughs> to bring them to the goal or the watering hole is, is one other place, the place where there is abundant water, a place of rest and relaxation. That sounds like a good place. Well, guess what? You're in that good place. That's the whole point. That's the point. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, when Paul says this, they that are led by the Spirit, they are the sons of God. You know what that word means? The same as this one, to lead to the goal, to lead to the place of completion, and thus the place of rest. They that are led by the Spirit and brought to the completion in Christ, they are the sons of God. They have come to the end of the matter. They've come to God's purpose fulfilled. And see, it's a picture painted right here. God's purpose was to do this by his own power to plant them into the mountain, not just any mountain, not just an imaginary thing that we think or some metaphorical thing, He's brought us to the place that he himself abides. It's called the Father's house in John 14. He's brought us to his own habitation. He's brought us unto, and Jesus says, what does that mean? Unto myself. Right? So there's so many pictures of this that we could go through and spend forever just looking at the different ways it's described and we'll do some of that tonight but that's what i want us to see when he says that that he came to the dead in sin raised them gathered them together made them sit in heavenly places in christ jesus that's a big deal that is salvation in fulfillment and in reality and in that there is no metaphors there's no dangling pieces and parts that does not give us, but the real deal's coming. No, that's the real deal. That's the end of the matter. My soul has come to the rest that he has promised. And that was a work of his power, his love, and his mercy. Because he has caused me to exist and be found in him. And this is, again, what he says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. This is the exceeding greatness of his strength, his power to usward who believe. This is the power exerted toward us, that we would be called the sons of God. This is the power exerted toward us, that we would be brought from death unto life. But that's not just something God does isolated from Christ. That's a reality because we are in that's the gift he's given us his son and in the giving of that son he's brought us into heaven itself see that's that's a big that's a big picture in fact there's so much of the old types and shadows especially you know we're talking about the deliverance of Egypt out of or out of the Israel out of Egypt and the people of God out of e Egypt. Well, that happened with the blood. 
there's this little this little house blood on the door and the lambs inside and they eat that lamb with haste it says you know what happens when god begins to create the testimonial elements of the tabernacle god does not leave that picture that picture's not left out he doesn't move on from that little house in goshen that little place where a lamb was slain and blood was spilled and put on the door he doesn't leave that behind he expands on that same picture and shows them exactly what happened to them in the tabernacle that was in their midst god strategically placed it inside of the encampment of the people it was the heart of that encampment it defined them and the man in the midst of it defined them God's picture was to show them this blood that is shed here at this altar. Here's what happens. It takes you into heaven itself, into the holiest of all in a man that stands before me holy, that stands before me perfect and accepted. See, that's just an expanded view of Goshen. That's not a different thing. It's the same thing. It's just showing them the blood of the lamb wasn't some little thing. The blood of the lamb, we make light of it because we have no comprehension of the weightiness of salvation by his blood. He takes the blood and says, no, this was, this was your way into the door, into heaven itself, unto God's throne. This is the place that it's brought you. It hasn't brought, and, and see, that's the thing. It this didn't bring you there as a bunch of people. It brought you there in one perfect man. That's why the Holy of Holies was reserved for one man once a year. See, that's what the blood of the Lamb brought them to. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Christ lives in me. That's what Goshen actually brought about. You remember, it wasn't him killing a book. Remember, God didn't kill uh, just all the Egyptians. What was the big thing he did? He killed the firstborn killed the firstborn and he brought forth his firstborn his son his firstborn see that's the picture it wasn't between a bunch of people here and a bunch of people there that's why we look at it because it keeps me in the picture I'm, I'm one of those bunch of people no it brought you from one firstborn to another firstborn there was the division made the firstborn of egypt now the firstborn of god that's what the blood brought about and that's the one who now stands in heaven itself for us. That's Hebrews 9. That's the one who stands there and secures in the sight of God our state of being. That's what it brought about. This is the fulfillment of the picture that is found. What we read, you know, the exceeding power toward us where he makes us partakers, brings us into one body that is filled with his fullness. This is the fulfillment of it, what we just read in Exodus. God has raised up one man by his power, has exercised that power to usward who believe in bringing us into the one body, 
the one living man that is now dead to sin and free from its enslavement. Now, that's just a small portion of what that talks about, and we'll get into some more of it as we go. But another testimony of this is found in Zechariah chapter 10. And we'll start reading in verse 6 of Zechariah 10. And it says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them again to, the pl to place them. For I have mercy upon them, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off. For I am the Lord their God, and will hear them. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their hearts shall rejoice as through wine. Yea, their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. And I will hiss for them and gather them, because I have redeemed them. They shall increase as they have increased, and I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children and turn again. Now that's, you know, that's a, there's a lot in that. But, you know, when we're reading this, we have to see it in the light of the same thing. I will bring them again to place them. I will plant them in the mountain. I will place them. I will have mercy upon them. They shall be as though I have not cast them off. And while many people look at Zechariah and they say, okay, that's a promise to the Jews, and one day that'll happen when God gives them that land. No. That is fulfilled in the being gathered together in one man, in one body, by the mercy of God. Gathered them because I have redeemed them. I will hiss for them. I will call them like a shepherd does his sheep. Because that's what the word hiss means. It's, it's what they did. It's kind of like a, a flute that was played by the uh, by the shepherd to call the sheep. If I could read, you know, a bunch of commentaries that say that that I have here, but that's the picture. I will gather them like a shepherd. And that was his hope. In the midst of Jerusalem, when he came to them in, in, in a physical way. But in one commentary that I have here, this is, um, uh, let me read. This is actually, this is Matthew Henry. And I was shocked that I got something really good out of Matthew Henry. But he says, I will bring them again to the place or to place them to bring them from other lands unto the place to place them in their own land, he says, this was a token of their being restored to their privileges. And he says, this is seen, and most people define it to be the restoration of their to their possession of their own land, physical land, natural land, that's what he's talking about. But he says, however, this was actually fulfilled when the children of God, speaking of the Jews at that time, that were scattered abroad by, were by faith in Christ incorporated into the church. And the Jews and the Gentiles became one fold and one body. Because that's what we're getting into in Ephesians chapter 2. That's what he's going to begin to talk about. How did that happen? 
what did God do to bring that about? And he began, he, he, he references John 10, 16, when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. See, again, this is the picture. I'll call them like a shepherd does his sheep. I'll hiss for them and I'll gather them because I've redeemed them. And my sheep know my voice and another they will not follow. Isn't that what Jesus said? But here he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known of mine. And as the father knows me, even so know I the father and lay down my life for the sheep and other sheep have I. Who's he speaking of there? The Gentile, not just the Jew, the Gentile. Other sheep have I, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring or gather and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. What is that? One body and one head same picture this is the gathering together that was promised that's why the language is so important we are gathered together raised together seated together in heavenly places in christ he's taking in so many of the fragments of the testimony and showing this is it guys being in christ is the culmination of everything anticipated and hoped for And so he, he goes on in this commentary and says, I'll hiss for them or rather whistle for them as the shepherd with his pipe calls his sheep together that know his voice. And so he will gather them. The preaching of the gospel, as it were, is God's hissing to the souls to come unto Christ. His calling in to his scattered sheep to the green pastures. And he, he puts a note here those whom Christ has redeemed by his blood have been gathered by his grace as sheep and as hens have been gathered under the wings of their mother. I mean, it's a beautiful picture. And most of the time we just overlook it. And he goes on and he says, but it, it has its, a spirit, it, its spiritual accomplishment in the gathering of the precious souls out of the bondage that is worse than that typified in Egypt. And the bringing of them into the glorious liberties of the children of God and their enjoyment, which are the beautiful, fruitful pastures in Christ himself. That's what we're seeing. The fulfillment is a spiritual fulfillment in the beloved of God. It's being found in him. And that's all that God promised. That's what we have been given. And that is the fulfillment in him. You're complete. That means in everything, nothing left, nothing left out except the soul comprehending the beauty of what God has given, the grace of God that has been bestowed. And, I, and a lot of that is through the ages to come, he will show his kindness. He will make known his kindness that he has made manifest in his church. Well, that's to his church that he makes known the wonderful mercy and kindness that he has shown. It is in us that have received such a gift that he continually opens that gift and shows us the beauty of it and the glory of it and the weight of it and the perfection of it that is found in him and not in us. That is a gift and not a payment based on deeds done and work rendered. They will be gathered 
This is the gathering he's talking about here. And, in, and then we go to Isaiah chapter 11. In verse 10 through 12, in that day, and I'm bringing in the the idea of the Jew and the Gentile because we need to understand that's where Paul's going here in chapter 2. He's wanting to show them this is one body. It's not just the Jew and the Gentile are saved and they agree to disagree about the law. Right? Some think it's good, some think it's bad. No, the law has nothing to do with this. God removed it all out of the way. He took it out of the way. He, he put away all of that stuff and he's brought you unto himself. One man that is neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female. None of those things define it. The man in whom we live defines it. The life that we have received defines it. That's what we've been gathered to. And that's what Isaiah 11 speaks about. Uh, Isaiah 11 verse 10. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse. There's the pick. That's the prophecy of Christ which shall stand for an ensign of the people. And to that ensign shall the Gentile seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Yeah, absolutely glorious, right? He has brought many sons unto his glory. In most literal translation, that's what it says. His rest shall be glory. That's what we've been brought to, his glory. This is the glory we are seen to be with him in when Christ, who is our life, appears and we see him as he is and we see the one who is our life. And what do we see? This is where we've been this whole time. This is the glory in which we have had our abiding in our habitation from the very beginning. That's the seeing of reality. That's not the coming of reality. That's the seeing of the reality that has come. And that's what the souls of those who have received such a gift are always to pursue. Set your affection above. Why? Because you're dead. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. The treasure and the beauty of what God has brought to you is above, not beneath. Set your heart to see reality in the face of the one who has made unto you all things, who is your very life. There's the, not the culmination, but either the comprehension of the culmination that God wrought in you at the moment of new birth. It is an end that you have arrived to in the soul coming to know the end to which it has come and begin to understand that the beginning and the end are one man. The end of it is the all of it. The end of it is the perfection of it in all of its facets, the length, the breadth, the depth, and the height of the love of God that has been bestowed to you in such a way that has brought you to this glorious reality, that you would know it fully. See, and the length and breadth and depth and height, all of that, that gives you what? A four-square picture. What was the Holy of Holies? What is heaven itself? Four-square. It has a length, it has a breadth, it has a depth, and it has a height. It's a four. It's a cube. It's not just a two-dimensional thing. It is a, it is, it has length, breadth, depth, and height. That's heaven itself. That's the very place we have our body. And it's the love of God that has brought us to such a place, to such a truth, to such a state of being. 
soul comes to know that. But there's that ensign that he prophesied of, that root of Jesse that stands as an ensign. The ensign was actually what they it was what the each tribe had a a flag, a banner that they would fly. And each one of the tribes had a banner, but there were four distinct banners. And you will see the emblems on each one of those four banners that defined each side of the tabernacle and culminated the the tribes in those four. You see that defined in one man in Ezekiel, right? That one who had a face of four preachers. If you go to the testimony of Israel, you'll see that the four banners that were on the east, north, south, east, and west of the tabernacle had those very four creatures on it. The ox, the man, the eagle. And and you see that same picture. That's the that's the ensign. Well, that's the testimony. But God says, I will bring one ensign. Why? Because it's not a bunch of tribes now. Right. It's not just it's not a bunch of it's not a bunch of tribes. It's not a bunch of groups in tribes gathering under their own banner with the name of the head of that tribe on it. That's what Israel had. And God had to define them in one. He defined them in one man, the holy of holies, the the, um, you know, the, the because, again, this is a teaching in and of itself that I did years ago. But the stones in the breastplate of the high priest, the 12 stones, actually each stone that represented the tribe, that stone was the same color as the flag that flew over that particular tribe. So the stone color corresponded to the color of their flag. Why? Because God wanted to show that they were defined in a man. They were known in a man. They had no identity outside of that man, and he had it upon himself. And that's the picture. So God culminates the whole of the entire encampment in a man. Okay? And that's the picture here. There will be one man who is given as an ensign, as a gathering point, as a banner. And what is the banner over us? What does the scripture say? The banner over us is love. That's the love man of manifest by God toward us. The love of God that has saved us by his grace. There's the ensign to whom the Gentiles shall seek. That's us. And his rest, that rest that he said he would lead his people to and guide them to the rest, the very place he has found his habitation and rest shall be glorious and it shall come to pass. I'm reading again, verse 11 of Isaiah 11. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again. The second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt, from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nation and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, not just the Gentiles, but the outcasts of Israel as well. That's what happened in Christ. And gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. 
And there again, that's what we're reading about in Ephesians. Here's the one man that we're reading about in, in the first chapter of Ephesians, whom God has raised up from his power. There's the raising up of the inside. There's the one man raised up to whom all should gather. And he gathered them together and made them one body under one head, one church filled with the fullness of one man. The root of Jesse standing raised up and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And it is interesting that, uh, you know, he uses this, this figure that's familiar to the Jews at the time, but it's now being offered to, and it's also being sought after by the, by the Gentiles. That's interesting. Um, in John chapter 11, here's some other verses. You can write these down, go to them. I'm, I'm going to try to get through as many as we can. <clears throat> then gathered the chief priests, John chapter 11, verse 47, then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, what do we? For this man, this man doth many miracles. They're trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. And if we let him alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest the same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation would perish not. Now, that is a beautiful statement, and he didn't even know what he was saying. <laughs> and he says, and this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. That takes in Jew and Gentile. Listen to the language here. He prophesied that not only for that nation, but that he also should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered. Does that sound familiar? You remember that phrase being used anywhere else? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of time, that God would gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. And again, when we went through those verses, that's the Jew and the Gentile gathering them together in one man. Even in him, they are gathered. So there's a <clears throat> so many places here. And like I said, I, I mean, so many verses, let's, let's go through, um, I'll just reference these. You can go read them. When we're talking about the scattered people, he says he would scatter his people. Go to Romans 11, verses 18 through 25, or 18 through 32. Read all of that and see what he's talking about. It's the same thing, that Israel was cast off. A blindness had happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. It's the same picture. He scattered them, 
yet he didn't destroy them, but he gathered them. But what he's saying in Romans 11 there is their gathering is not the, the gathering of the Jew is not different than the gathering of the Gentile. They have to be gathered just like the Gentile. And what did he say? Their salvation is life from the dead, just like the Gentiles, because this is about God showing mercy and coming to the dead to save them by grace and to manifest his kindness toward them. Because it says there in verse 32 of chapter 11 of Romans, because God did all of this, that he should show mercy upon. He concluded them all in unbelief that he would have mercy upon all of them. So that's the same picture here. God who's rich in mercy, loved us and by his grace saved us. It's the same picture. Now, I want to read one more place, and we may just end up having to stop here and then keep going in the next one because I think I've gone a little long. <laughs> and I know this isn't exciting, and I'm not here to excite you anyway, but um, these are necessary things we need to consider. Amen. I, I promise you, these are things that we need to understand. Man, it takes in so much. And I'm throwing these, I hope you're writing them down and looking at these things because, you know, I'm not trying to, and, and I hate the fact that, you know, we get so anti-thinking <laughs> in the in the Christian world. I, I, I think thinking is a good thing. I would wish more people would do it, especially Christians. And the issue is that we need to consider these verses and these places and these testimonies and say, my God, that's what has come to us. That's the reality that we now have. And if, man, to me, that was a, that would allow so many people to just stop putting so much stuff off and finally set their affection where it belongs. And that's to know and to see Jesus, because then you realize there's nothing more than him. There's nothing greater than him. You see, there's nothing greater than the life that God has given to the soul. And so let me read uh, in this, just this one commentary, not to bore you, but to inform you. I think this is a beautiful uh, thing that he says here. This is from Ephesians chapter two, what we've been reading those verses. And this is, uh, it's from Kenneth Wiest. Uh, commentary. He says, now comes this interjection. He's speaking of by grace are you saved. And I love this. We have here in the Greek, what is called a, a paraphrastic construction. We call it a parenthetical statement, but it's called a paraphrastic construction. This is used when the writer cannot get all of the detail or the action from one verbal form. That means he can't come up with enough to just get it all said in one verb. So what he does is he uses two forms. He uses the finite verb and the participle. So he says the participle here is in the perfect tense. Don't go to sleep, but just <laughs> please bear with me. I promise. The participle here is in the perfect tense, which tense speaks of an action 
that took place in past time and was completed in past time, having results that exist in the present time. The translation reads, or true Greek print translation would say, by grace you have been completely saved with the result presently you are in a saved state of being. The perfect tense speaks of the existence of finished results in present time. But Paul is not satisfied with just showing the existence of a finished result in present time. He wants to show the persistent, the permanent of the result through present time. Mm -hmm. So he uses the verb to be in the present tense, which gives a durative force to the finished result. So the full translation is, by grace you have been saved in past time completely with the result that you are in a state of salvation that persists through present time. The unending state of the believer in salvation. Listen to that. The unending, permanent state of the believer in salvation could not have been put in stronger or clearer language. The finished result of a past action of salvation are always present. His present state of salvation is dependent upon one thing and one thing only, his union with the Lord Jesus as his Savior. The initial work of faith brought him salvation in its three aspects. Now, here's where he falls off the turnip truck. <laughs> Everything he said was beautiful up till he tries to say this. And I don't see how in the world he does it. But, man, wrong theology will steer you the wrong way every time. It doesn't matter how educated you are in these things. If you don't see Christ as the end of the matter and salvation as the fulfillment of all things, you're going to do just right here. Exactly what he's doing. He's saying, here's the three aspects of the salvation that has been brought to us. And he's just said it's complete, perfect, present tense, a full salvation that is permanent and persistent. And yet he does this justification. That's the removal of the guilt. That's present sanctification. He says that's positional and progressive and glorification. There's the third thing, which is happening one day in heaven when we get there. Just a nutshell what he said. How in the name of God in heaven can you come up with that idea? Because I'm about to read you a verse that Paul himself writes in Romans 8 that says the very opposite of what this guy just said. Because Paul understood salvation in its perfect, persistent, permanent condition, state of being. So in that salvation, we have salvation in these three aspects, justified, sanctified, glorified. Now, most of the church is still, you know, fighting with their sanctification, even though they think they're just, no, they're justified. They're still worried about their sanctification. And they define it by a million different things. Glorification, everybody thinks that's the future. However, Romans chapter eight says this, verse 29. We are already, 
This is from the Weist Word Study. You can read this in King James, but this is this is the translation. <laughs> oh, okay. Let me let me uh, pull it up here because that's that's part of what he says. Um, does anybody have Romans eight? Because I don't have it right in front of me. Can you pull up Romans 8, verse 29, and read it? And 29 and 30. This is from the New King James. Yeah, that's fine. So anybody, okay, that's fine. Uh, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, okay. that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, if you read that and you see what we've been saying this whole time, the predetermination of God, the foreknowledge of God, and the calling into this adoption and sonship and the firstborn, this is this is all saying the same thing. Now, keep going. I'm sorry. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Okay. And those whom he called, he justified. Keep going. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Okay. And all of that is in the past tense in the Greek. It is in the aorist active, which means the same thing as what he's just said here. It means there's a past occurrence that has present and continual effect. So those he called, those he Pre foreknew or predestined, which Ephesians 1 says we were predetermined and predestinated to be unto the adoption of sons or children by Jesus Christ. So he, he predetermined. Those he predetermined or predestined, he called or invited to himself. Those he called, he has justified. And those he has justified, he has glorified. That's not something yet to be. That's a reality of being in him. That's a reality of being found in the one who stands in the glory of God himself. Amen. We have been glorified, not, not because our body shines like lights. We've been glorified because Christ in us is the glory that was always promised and hoped for and expected. That's what Colossians chapter one talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again, not a hope for something, the hope itself that has been hoped for, expected through the ages of time. Christ in you fulfills that hope. Heaven itself, Christ in you fulfills that hope because we're going to get into the, you know, heavenly places in Christ. It refers right back to the, you will bring them into the mountain, the place, the sanctuary that you have established. Your hands have established, not men's, your hands have established the place you call your habitation. Man, that's a big deal. That's a lot. And I want us to understand that's our state of being. That's our salvation. So we'll stop there and we'll pick up right here in the next 
passion. Thank you.